but you know what relish is is who's looking out for us who where where is the us care and you can do a lot of us care on your own by like i said learning about yourself and learning about your partner um and impacting how you show up every day i think the important thing is that no matter how short or long you've been together the other person has a choice every single day as to whether they're going to keep being there and show up and they can leave like you know I, people get complacent and this is about fighting that complacency and keeping things alive and keeping things fresh and being there for each other and showing up every day as your best self and that's that's the sort of thesis behind relish All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Look Up Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Weinstein, recording here from the south of France in the middle of the coronavirus outbreak. Wow, what a crazy time to be alive. Uh, So many wild things happening in the world around us. I invite you all to take a few deep breaths. Stay grounded uh, to take care of yourself and your loved ones. And also to remember that life goes on and to try to continue to find joy and meaning from all that you do in spite of what's happening at such a macro level. It's March 10th, 2020, and I'm here to bring you another episode, another interview with an incredible human. This guest is Leslie Eccles. She is the founder and CEO of Relish, which is the first ever relationship training app that makes it easier to build happy, healthy, and more connected relationships. Uh, When I heard that Leslie was doing podcasts, I was super interested in chatting with her because she is a serial entrepreneur who has been the co-founder of a huge business uh, where she led marketing, a company called FanDuel. And FanDuel is a fantasy sports company which Leslie and her team grew into a multi-billion dollar business. Uh, Leslie did it all while she was a mother of three, And what's super interesting about her story is that she co-founded FanDuel with her husband, Nigel. That story, which we discuss in detail, is incredibly important to listen to if you are an entrepreneur or a founder of a company. They went through a decade long of trials and tribulations, building a company in a highly regulated industry with massive competition. Uh, There were a lot of sharks at the gate that were trying to take their equity from them. Uh, They ended up getting uh, pretty badly hurt by their investors financially. And Leslie tells a little bit of that story, although she can't go into too many details because there is an ongoing lawsuit. But I felt that this was so important to share with you all. Uh, One, because this person, this woman had incredible success. She's a female founder. She was a mother. She lived a life that probably five lives that I couldn't imagine the strain um, and stress, but she's a freaking champion. Another reason why I shared is because this story of, you know, founder success, but still having a extremely challenging time. 
um, and experiencing loss in the face of building a billion dollar business. I mean, I can't even believe it. I've been a startup founder two times and spent two years on each of them. Uh, neither of them turned out the way that I wanted, but knowing what that is like, I can't imagine having succeeded in all the ways that she did and still struggling because the investors didn't deliver. So we talk a lot about that. And then, of course, we talk about her new company, Relish, which is all about us work. So a lot of these episodes, we talk about self-work, different practices that you can put into place to take care of yourself, different philosophies. But of course, relationship is probably one of the greatest tools that we have in our lives to reflect on ourselves because life is not lived in isolation. We are all householder yogis, those of us that are practicing. We're not ascetic monks living in a cave. And so how do we take our practices into relationship? How do we improve our communication skills? How do we get empathetic with others? And so that's what Relish is all about, specifically in romantic relationships. So we dig deep in this episode on what it means to be a mother, a wife, and a startup founder. Leslie offers some incredible advice for young founders who find themselves in the position of raising capital. We describe different self-care practices, and Leslie has a unique practice. I mean, you'll hear about it on this episode, but it's not meditation. It's not breath work. It's not kind of the standard what you would expect about self-work or self-care. But I think that's a lesson to all of us that self-work needn't be some highfalutin spiritual practice, but can be something very simple that grounds you or something less obvious. And we discuss all the different relationship styles, the importance of therapy and communication, and Leslie's passion for improving the relationships of all of her relish users. So it's been said that a thorn of experience is worth a wilderness of warning. And Leslie has a ton of great insights to share from 25 years of marriage, nearly as many parenting, and over a decade starting and building multi-billion dollar companies. I'll let her do the rest of the talking. So without further ado, Leslie Eccles. Do you remember what we talked about last time? <laughs> no. No idea. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> they were like, yeah, whatever, I've heard it before. <laughs> yeah, no, not at all. It's, uh, I'm excited to learn more. So, Leslie, thanks for coming back on <laughs> the Look Up podcast. Um, just for listeners, I mentioned this uh, early this year, but um, I my bag was stolen. I had six podcast episodes on my computer, which was in the bag. My first uh, two months of content for 2020. And Leslie was uh, one of the people that I had spoken to that I was most excited to share with you. Uh, so she graciously decided to give me another hour of her time in spite of being uh, in the midst of building a, an, another startup company, um, Relish. So I'm super, super appreciative, Leslie, for you coming back on the show. Thank you. Pleasure. I enjoyed it last time. I'm sure I'll enjoy it this time as well. <laughs> Excellent. So I'm thinking about, you know, what we spoke about last time. And it's like, I know we have to go over some of some of the stuff that we discussed because it's it's pretty juicy. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe we'll be able to go to go deeper into it. So I guess, you know, the the starting point for me is going to be um, your experience at FanDuel. So why don't we start there? Um, it's a crazy story and it includes DraftKings as well. 
uh, to an extent, but they're the enemy. So it's uh, one of the many villains of the story. Uh, yeah, so, uh, I mean, we can go right back to the start, if you like. We, yes. Uh, 2007, um, my husband and I decided that we wanted to start a business together. And I think there's never a good time to start a business. I think there's always a reason not to. Um, 2007 was definitely not a good time to start a business uh, from a economics point of view. Uh, from a personal point of view, I just had a baby. I had a toddler. We just take that mortgage. You know, it was a terrible time to start a business. Um, but anyway, we figured if we don't make the jump now, we're never going to do it. And uh, uh, my husband quit his job. We had an idea for a game. It was a, a prediction market game where you uh, made predictions on news stories. Super fun game. Um, but we took private. Uh, we we took VC money uh, in two thousand and eight, um, and we couldn't figure out a way to monetize the product. And obviously, um, we're under a lot of pressure from uh, our investors to uh, make sure that we got they we got them a return. Um, so going into two thousand and nine, we decided to look at um, uh, look at pivoting into a different business. And, you know, we, we started the company originally in Scotland. Uh, I'm Scottish. I moved to New York uh, four years ago. Um, but none of the founders of, of FanDuel were actually from the U.S. Um, we took a really tough road in terms of our, our choice of business. Um, you know, we were, we were not the target market. And that's always that's always harder. Um, I think it brings a new perspective to things. Um, you're able to look at things with fresh eyes that maybe other people who are more entrenched in the industry wouldn't have noticed. Um, but anyway, we pivoted into FanDuel in the summer of 2009 mm-hmm. and then spent 10 years building that company up basically brick by brick, um, really, you know, getting a deep understanding of the pain points around fantasy sports and how we might build a product that would solve some of those pain points. Yeah. And just for the, just for the listeners, you know, what, what was the product? What is FanDuel? So FanDuel originally was daily fantasy sports. So in the season long version of fantasy sports and shortening it to either a day or a week, depending on the sport. And allowing users to play for money and sign up to all different types of leagues. And um, it had never been done before. Um, and we really created the market around it, created an entirely new industry. Um, so it was challenging for, uh, for many years. Um, and then going into 2015, you mentioned DraftKings earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, DraftKings uh, appeared in around about 2015, uh, sorry, 2013, and they were very aggressive in terms of uh, a competitor. Um, they clearly wanted to win the marketplace. Um, and we ended up in a deeply competitive battle for market share in 2015. And you know, at the start of that year, as a board, we sat together and we said, we know how DraftKings are going to go after us and we need to decide are we going to match them toe for toe 
or are we going to pack up and go home because they'll just take all of our market share? Mm-hmm. Um, so at that point, we said, no, we're, we're going to aim by the end of this year to be at a point where we're 50-50 in the market. Um, and, and the economics of these of sports betting sites or really betting sites in general is that it's so important to have scale because the larger the scale, the larger the pot, and then more people will come for the larger pot. So there's major what are called network effects in you know power laws apply to sports yeah. betting, particularly in the uh, in the daily fantasy sports space where. Um, it it was about it was about the pot. Um, uh, you know, sports betting is is slightly different, um, but uh, certainly whenever you you know whenever your marketing is all about who has the most prizes, um, then liquidity becomes really really important. Absolutely, and so you're you're starting a company. First off, you started a company in two thousand and seven, so right in the midst of the financial crisis. Second yeah. off, you started a company from Scotland and were seeking yeah. VC capital and yeah. clearly not in a place where the VCs were looking at that time, let alone, I don't even know today. Um, and tell you, fantasy sports was not a sexy industry. And I was going to say, and then you were in fantasy sports was basically all Yahoo at that time, not a lot of fantasy sports yeah. betting. And you're going after a highly regulated market in the U.S. in particular and gambling and kind of pioneering, you know, that that market, which regulators had their eyes on because for whatever reasons, you know, gambling can only happen in very specific ways in very specific places. So you are, would you describe yourself as a masochist? (laughs) (laughs) Possibly. (laughs) Hindsight, yes. Uh, no, we, you know, we, we were just very determined once you set out on a course of action. Um, you know, I'm the sort of person that if I decide to do something, I'm going to be all in. And I think that's very much the situation that we were in. We decided that we were going to start a business. We invested our life savings in the business and we pivoted into something that none of us expected to be in. But certainly the more we investigated that that area and that industry and the potential of it, we were all very excited about what it might turn into. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't think I've ever done anything the, the easy way. So <laughs> why change the habit of a lifetime? For sure. I mean, and and the juice is worth the squeeze, right? Or is, is meant to be worth the squeeze. And I forgot to mention you also had just had a small child um, and gotten yeah. married. And, and so that was the additional aspect. And that's something that I definitely want to touch on. We spoke about it last time. You know, what was it like starting a company with your husband? Mm-hmm. Do you know what? Uh, Nigel and I really enjoyed working together. Um, we work very well together. We complement each other really well. And, you know, most people that I talk to about it are horrified that that we would have even <laughs> contemplated working together. Um, but we, we definitely enjoyed uh, that experience. Second time round, so we both left FanDuel and gone on to build new businesses. And uh, we actually have offices right next door to each other, but we decided to start our own businesses individually. Um, And really the main reason is that um, from an investor's perspective, it's a, uh, it's not, uh, I would call it, I would call it a yellow flag for investors. 
Yeah. About husband and wife team starting a business together. And certainly in the early days of FanDuel, um, you know, my name was kind of left off the pitch doc, the, the pitch deck. You know, mm. no one wanted to kind of admit that there was a husband and wife situation here. Obviously, you know, the investors would find out and um, they, they didn't like it. Uh, they saw it as a risk. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which in my mind is absolutely crazy. You know, we've been together for 25 years. We were going to divorce. We would have divorced long before that. <laughs> but, <laughs> and honestly, I think that, you know, I always say when you're, when you're doing a startup, it puts a pressure on your relationship anyway, mm. even if you're not both in it together. Because it is so all-consuming and it is all you think about and it is all you want to talk about. And if you were, if I wasn't in it with Nigel, um, the amount of stress that we were under within that business, uh, I'm pretty sure we would have separated uh, if we hadn't both been in it together because we understood the pressure each of us was under. And we had different roles and responsibilities and we were able to shoulder that pressure in different ways and at different points of the year. Um, and really just juggle being startup founders with being mom and dad. Um, and that was, that was an important element as well. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting. I mean, I think the VCs, you know, take the standpoint that the number one reason for startup failure is typically founder disputes. You know, if you're married, you're already, you, you know, you already have pressure on your relationship from the responsibilities of marriage. And then you double that with, um, with having a business to take care of. And if there's any issues at home, now you have a, you know, a, a truly uh, founder, you know, dis split, a founder divorce. That's a, that's a huge issue. But I hear you. I mean, I think, you know, what you're highlighting to me is this element of, of any successful relationship, which is empathetic communication, let's call it. So you understood what Nigel was going through. Nigel understood what you were going through. And therefore you're able to kind of meet at the certain level and appreciate that and show respect for that. Whereas right. if one of you had been working on a startup and the other were kind of in the typical nine to five, coming home at 5 p.m. saying, I want to hang out with my partner and you're there on your computer taking your 15th phone call of the day and you have six more hours of work to do. <laughs> right. There's just a lack of understanding there or it's fine for a little while, but then it gets old pretty quickly, right? Um, you know, if you're a team uh, at home, you're, you're a team in the workplace. Yeah, I mean, like what, what I, I'm sure listeners, you know, would love to understand kind of like as someone that's been, been in the trenches with her husband, you know, so to speak, um, you know, and experienced this high intensity environment together, plus building a family together, you know, what, not relationship advice, but what qualities do you believe that you and, and your husband individually have and or that your relationship has that has, you know, that has kept such a strong bond? Nigel and I are very different people. Uh, he is definitely the optimist. and I'm definitely more of the worrier. Mm. Um, I think we've over the years, we've gradually met more in the middle, um, which I think has been healthy for both of us. Um, and I think just being very respectful for each other. I think respect is the number one criteria in any relationship doesn't matter what type of relationship it is um if you don't respect the other people the other person uh that's going to be really detrimental and uh particularly in 
founder relationship and marriage or intimate relationship, that respect is, it's got to be number one, uh, respect and, and trust. You know, trust is a big issue for me in terms of, you know, I, I, I understand how important that is. One of, and we haven't gotten on to Relish yet, but Relish, my new company, um, one of the most uh, enjoyed lessons in Relish is called jumping to good conclusions. Mm. And this talks very much to this element of you need to trust that the other person in the relationship is doing what they think is the right thing. And you should assume at all times that they're going to do the right thing. And I think it's really important in this area of remote working, remote teams. You know, I, my team is spread across multiple locations and the FanDuel team was the same thing. You need to assume that the other person is doing the right thing in order for trust to be a sort of foundation of that relationship. Yeah, I'm reminded of a quote that says something, and I forget who said it, something along the lines of, if you want to be trusted, you need to trust. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I'll I'll find a link to the quote for listeners in case you're curious, because that's definitely not exactly it. It was much more eloquent. But the idea is that you need to actually take that leap of faith to trust someone else before they're going to trust you and or as they are trusting you. Even for those of us that have been burned before. I mean, I've had co-founder issues in the past. Um, you know, bad break. I started my first business with my best friend at the time, and he and I are just now, you know, five or six years later, mending our friendship um, after you know not having the outcome that we wanted. So I completely understand, you know, how these sorts of things can kind of break down. And we didn't talk about relish yet, and we'll definitely get there. But it's actually perfect, in my opinion, that you're starting relish, which you know is essentially a relationship, you know, counselor in your pocket. Um, because of your experience, not only living and, you know, having this relationship, but working with your husband and, and majorly high intensity, high intensity, high stress environment of building a massive company from zero. Um, and so that's so cool. So let's, uh, let's go back to the story. So now you're at where we left off was you're at 2015. This new market entrant DraftKings comes in, your fan duel, as we established. You know, yeah. you're you've got a ton of VC backing at this point. They now have a lot of capital coming in. And it's basically like a, a war of attrition that kicks off. Yeah. Yeah. So football season of 2015, between the two companies, we spent half a billion dollars on advertising. And to put that in perspective, like what can you share what the revenue numbers were at that time? It was probably like $150 million. Wow. Uh, maybe 200. So yeah. well, so well, well above revenue between the two companies or, or at par with revenue, like you were just burning cash. You know, to a certain extent, that's, that's the nature of a lot of startups. Startups, yeah. Paid acquisition. Um, but the... You know, the, the, the point that I made earlier was we were kind of forced into this position. Wouldn't have been our choice. Um, and you were leading marketing at the company. Right. Yeah. So you were managing this, you know, quarter of a billion dollar budget basically to, to go win. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> For a small team. Uh, and uh, it was it was incredibly intense. Um and of course, you know, when a company or, or an industry goes out and, and, and does that, you know, at one point, DraftKings was the biggest spender 
on TV in the world. And then another point, FanDuel was the biggest spender on TV in, in the US. Um, I think we're the biggest spender on Facebook in the world. You know, it was crazy levels of spend. Um, but it was done, it was done as uh, thoughtfully as we could possibly do it. You know, as a company, FanDuel had a history of being deeply disciplined about their approach to growth. Mm. And we maintain that even, you know, despite the craziness. Um, and then, you know, if two companies go out and spend that much money on advertising, people are going to notice, right? And, and, I, and by people, I don't necessarily mean users. Yeah. <laughs> people that live in white houses in, in certain uh, capital cities. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that was the next sort of nine months uh, of, of the company's existence was, okay, we now have to go and clarify the meaning of fantasy sports. Is it a game of skill or is it a game of chance? Um, to your point earlier around the regulations uh, for gaming, there were about 22 states across the country where it was not clear in the state legislation whether this was uh uh, a game of chance or a game of skill. If it was a game of chance, it would be illegal. If it was a game of skill, it would be legal. And we had to clarify the law in around about 22 states, which took a lot of time and a lot of money. Um, so you're burning money on marketing and, and legal and compliance now. I mean, and, and as someone that's played fantasy sports and have friends that have played, and I'm not really big into sports these days, but years ago, you know, I have friends that consistently could win, right? And so it's it seems clear that it's it's a game of skill, but I'm not a regulator. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so you know that was a that was a painful process, but we got through it and then we entered into a um merger discussions with DraftKings. Um so that took about a year and then the FTC decided that that was anti-competitive and blocked the merger. It was really after that point that uh, the founders all left the company and went our separate ways and, and started new businesses. And, and there's a part of the story that has come out. There was a book written by a Sports Illustrated author, blanking on the name of the book. Can you, can you remind me? Yeah, Billion Dollar Fantasy. Billion Dollar Fantasy. And in that book, they reference that after all those years of building – KKR came in, one of the private equity funds, and invested, and the founders got diluted to to near zero. Is that is that true, or you know what's the what's the story there? You know, you built a you know a multi hundred million dollar revenue company at that point, probably a billion dollar plus multi billion dollar valuation business, um, yeah. and the story goes that you all walked away, you all founders walked away with nothing. Um. So yeah, we took money from private equity, KKR and Shamrock were the two private equity companies and we raised about $450 million. Wow. Um, and you know, you, you raise that much money and you are diluted, of course. Um, uh, and yeah, we, um, going into 2018 after the founders had all left, um, there was a merger with Paddy Power Betfair um, and as a result of that merger, the founders, the early employees, anyone who was an ordinary shareholder, uh, were, were basically wiped out. 
as a result of the merger. What is, if in case there are founders listening, we talked about this a little bit last time, I remember now, but like, what would you recommend to a young founder who's getting involved with these VCs and with private, eventually private equity funds that all they do is structure terms and they, they know exactly how to structure terms such that they're preferential and they get paid out before the founders and whatnot. What do you recommend to founders to protect themselves? I mean, you had, by all intents and purposes, a successful company outcome. You went to war. You built this business. You took on the competition massively. You raised a ton of capital. You did everything, everything right. The probability of success is minuscule at that level. Um, and yet still in the end, the outcome for you and, and the partners wasn't there. So like, what would you advise young founders who are just getting started? How can they protect themselves? Uh, so there's a few things that spring to mind. So first of all, uh, the reason that we ended up with nothing was not to do with dilution. Mm-hmm. There is a, there's a lawsuit underway right now uh, uh, where... Um, Basically, it's all tied in with the merger transaction. Not really going to go into details about it here. Yeah, for sure. But, <laughs> I get um, it. Yeah, I think the main the main takeaway for me is really do your due diligence on any investor that you're going to take money from. This taking money from an investor is a bit like going into a marriage. Like mm-hmm. I'm not being overly dramatic here, you're going to be working with this person for maybe up to 10 years, maybe longer. Um, So you need to know who you're getting into bed with. You need to really be thoughtful about who this person is and what their reputation is and talk with founders that they've worked with in the past in companies where they haven't necessarily just gone and hockey sticked. You know, who who are the who are the founders, the companies that they've invested in where it's not all been up and to the right? And how did they act? And mm. how did they behave? And how supportive were they of the founding team? And did they always do the right thing for the company? Those are the kind of questions that you should be asking. And if during that process there are any even yellow flags, then just walk away. So hard for a founder to get a term sheet from an investor and walk away from it. And people will be listening to this and say, yeah, 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 I'm sure it can be. <laughs> um, like, I'm not going to say I told you so, but <laughs> so you have to be very thoughtful about who you get into bed with. Yeah, as they say, a thorn of experience is worth a wilderness of warning. So you've had the experience, you know, you've had a wilderness of experience you're sharing with that with everyone, but we'll we'll see how they how they react to that. Um another point I want to touch on, and I do want to get into relish, and we will. Um, you know, you were also a mother at this time. And, you know, we're seeing so many more um women founders these days, um, it, which is fantastic. Uh, so many more women VCs these days, you know, we're yeah. still not where I think we can be, but one aspect of being a woman that men certainly cannot replicate is being a mother, you know? And so yeah. w- what is, what was it like being 
being a mother while starting and working on this, a new mother as well, while starting and working on this, this company, this massive undertaking. Yeah. I mean, you, you don't get a moment to yourself. That's kind of, that's it. You make sacrifices, right? Um, uh, but the important thing for me and everything, and I, I had another child. Uh, so I have three children. I had two before we started. And oh, I wow. I didn't realize. So you already had, how old were the other two? Now or then? Then, if you can, we can do the, do the math. So 2013, I had a baby and the other two were six and nine. Okay, wow. Boy, boys or girls? Of the three? The two boys and then the little girl. Oh, wow. My family's the opposite. I've got two older sisters and then me. I came late. Right. (laughs) Spoiled one. I'm the spoiled one for sure. The parents are, you you guys are already tired at that point, you know, parents are already broken in, so to speak. It's like, all right, just do what you want. I've had enough. I want to watch TV or or build my business in your case. I doubt you had much time for TV. But I think for me, it was really important um, for me to to show my kids that you know my role in in what we built and to role model that uh, you know I grew up with a mom who was a stay at home mom. She was amazing. She was there for me every single day. She cooked and baked and cleaned her house every single day and was an amazing housekeeper and she was wonderful. Um, But that's not me and that's not who I am. And I wanted to show my kids that the role of a mother is not just that. And that's been really important to me. And, you know, my my daughter will talk about you know when she when she grows up she wants to be whatever it is uh at the at the time it might be a singer or or whatever and then she'll be i want to be a mom as well and you know having those kind of conversations with with my daughter is really important to me um and i'm really glad that uh that they they can see what you know they don't really understand at the moment but when they're older, they can look back and say, wow, mom did that. And that's pretty cool. I want to go back to something you said earlier. You know, interesting that you were left off the deck. When did they add you onto the deck? When did you end up on the website? When was it okay, you know, to say Leslie is a part of this founding team? Yeah, I think it was always on the website. Um, I was never on the deck. I do remember really wishing that I hadn't changed my name when I got married and had kept my maiden name and it would have made life a little bit easier. Um, But whatever, it's kind of ancient history now. I'm actually, um, I'm working with a company right now. So I don't even know if my listeners know that I, this is not my full-time job. Like I, I work as a business consultant to startup companies, been an adventure investor two years prior to this and started two companies of my own um, prior to that. And I'm also a recovering investment banker, but one of the companies that I'm actually working with, recovering, capital R, um, one of the companies that I'm working with right now actually is uh, is a very similar situation. They just moved to New York. I'm going to introduce you guys. Husband, husband and wife. The wife leads marketing. The husband is the, is considered the founder. She has her original last name, her her you know her her maiden name, in the deck, and they have a one year old child. <laughs> Shout out to Winston. He's so cute. 
Um, but yeah, you know, they're, they're working together and it's interesting to see, to see actually how the company, you know, in a way is, it's just an addition to the family. You know, I always think of, of businesses as like another child, <laughs> like yeah. you're, you are birthing something as an entrepreneur, you're bringing an idea to life. So it's okay. like, you know, they have two cats, Winston, and then, and then the company and, yeah. uh, it's like, it's like the, the, the fourth sibling. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I used to, I used to feel that way too. I used to feel like uh, my company was my child. Um, and I think, you know, through the experiences that we've had, I've realized that you do have to somewhat distance yourself from mm. company, not your child, uh, because day somebody's going to come along and take over or, uh, you know, uh, you'll sell it or, you know, um, there has to be an exit at some point. Um, so there's a certain amount of emotional distancing that, you know, the more experience you've had, as soon as you, you're like second or third time entrepreneur, you realize it's not your baby. It's, it's, it's certainly, uh, you're very passionate about it and, and you're going to do everything that you can to make sure that it survives. But um, it's very different. Yeah, that's super helpful. And I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, again, I mentioned this as someone that started two companies, I would even say, I would go so far to say that I not only treated it like my child, but I treated them as an extension of myself. And so everything that happened within the company completely determined my own self-worth. And when the odds are stacked against you as they are in a startup, that's a really dangerous position to put yourself into. So I appreciate that clarification for listeners. Like that's Super important if you are starting a company, it's not you and it's not yeah. your child. It's just, you can be passionate about something without conflating those two. So yeah, that's a good, a really, really valid point. Uh, so I guess you said, you know, you didn't have time for yourself, but I mean, we live in this world now, I think where we we still have the cult of productivity, right? And, you know, everybody always wants to be on and it's, what are you doing today? And what have you done lately? And do, 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 do. Um, but we also are starting to see kind of infiltrate into Silicon Valley, kind of the health and wellness, um, taking care of your own house, you know, taking care of your spiritual well-being, your emotional well-being, mental health, um, which are all really positive trends. Did you have any practices that you put in place at that time, whether they were, you know, organized practices like I'm going to meditate right now or just something that emerged that helped you get through all of the stress? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I would say I learned to, um, actually around the time when I was pregnant in 2012, 13, um, I'd actually lost a number of babies. That's why we have such a big age gap. Um, and I ended up, um, doing, uh, self-hypnosis. Um, and the self-hypnosis was really, I mean, it was, it was back in 2011, 2012, where meditation wasn't a thing, you know, it was, it was yeah, a thing was. in India, but it definitely wasn't a thing in Scotland. Um, and I remember I would take myself off to the bathroom, maybe three or four times a day at work and just breathe. And that was what got me through that incredible, incredibly tough time of losing lots of babies uh, and uh, and then being pregnant um, while still trying to build a business. 
Um, And I that experience set me up really well for the hyper growth period where you are under a lot of pressure uh, or a lot more pressure. And um, and then the period after that with all the legal battles where you were wondering, oh, uh, where is this going to end? Um, and I think um, I think that was a really good practice to get into just that control and the breathing and the mindfulness on a regular basis um, set me up uh, pretty well for dealing with the level of stress that we were under. Um, nowadays, I go shopping instead. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm a Everybody big fan of home goods. <laughs> every, every weekend, I'm like, I'm off to meditate in home goods. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> I mean, I, everybody has their own practice. I honestly think, and I, I love you, mom, don't get mad, but I honestly think that going to home goods and doing laundry is possibly my mom's greatest meditation. Like she'll put like one piece of clothing up in a wash. Like I, I got to do the wash. I'm like, mom, you love doing laundry. But like she really does. I, I swear this is true. So everybody has their own practices. It doesn't have to be, you know, super spiritual or woo-woo or whatever, whatever reconnects you to yourself and takes you off yeah. of that mental train is exactly. super helpful. Yeah. Um, wow. So that's crazy. So you also experienced some serious challenges with, um, with, with childbirth that, that must've been really hard. It, it was, and it was, uh, the only time in my life that I actually went to therapy, um, and just did talk therapy with a, a local counselor for, maybe about six months in conjunction with the self-hypnosis. Um, and it really helped. Um, and uh, yeah, happy to say that finally got my baby in 2013. Uh, miracle. She's an absolute treasure. Um, and I think, you know, the longer you wait for something, the, 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 the better it is, right? So, yeah. Absolutely. And I've, I'm someone that's done cognitive behavioral therapy before. Um, I was lucky enough in high school to have the school psychologist take an interest in me. I, I don't think I was crazy, but you know, there he had started this group of exceptional students at the time. Everyone was super stressed. And there was a in public school, there's a heavy focus on not leaving anyone behind, but he felt there wasn't a, a focus on the students that were excelling, but maybe still struggling with mental health issues because of the demands to excel you know, in that environment. And I have to say without Dr. Sefik, shout out Sefik, you know, I don't think I would have gotten through like going to the running of the bulls at Wharton and investment banking and startup life and all that stuff without the tools that we shared. And part of it, part of my tools that I often forget is just like laughing at myself. Like the the cosmic joke that is life. It's like so nice to just laugh a little bit. And so I, I, I do want to, I, I want to move on to relish, but I want to ask you kind of one more thing um, about that time in your life, like, you know, coming off of, well, actually I have a couple more things. So coming off of um, FanDuel, you know, I guess you had built something really special. You had built a family as well, which is also really special. And maybe even now, like what, what are you most proud of um, right now? What am I most proud of? Hmm. That's a tricky question. Um, honestly, I, I, I think I'm most proud of the family that we have, like just, just that unit. It's hard. It's definitely not easy. And what's harder family or startup? <laughs> depends on the day. 
Like I have two teenage boys. Like, do I need to say anything more? (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't that long ago. The testosterone is, uh, is definitely running high at that time. For sure. I was not as jovial. Um, (laughs) Oh, God bless you. Um, (laughs) So, and then, um, I guess that, thank you for sharing that. Uh, when FanDuel, when you left FanDuel, how much time did you take? Like, was there a feeling like, oh, like an exhale of like, thank God, I need a friggin' break? Like, or were yeah. you just like, I got to go on to the next one because, you know, I'm ready and whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah, so, so it was, it was a, it was a, the transition looked like in 2016, I stepped away from kind of the day to day running the business. I stayed on the board for a year after that. Meanwhile, we moved to the States. So, uh, you know, me stepping away allowed us to make the move to the States. Uh, 2017 was when um, we all left FanDuel for good. And I had about four months then of being FanDuel free, if you like. Um, And I really had this sense of being able to breathe again for the first time in a long time. And I know that sounds overly dramatic, but that no, is very much what it all. felt like. Anyone that started a, a company, I mean, you worked on it for how many years? You were working on it for- 10 years. Oh, wow. So, I mean, God, I've, you know, the most I've gone was was three and the exhale is- Yeah, yeah it's huge. Real. It's huge. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so that was the initial feeling and the second feeling was I am never going to do another startup in my life because that was incredibly tough. And then the third feeling was, well, that's kind of all I know. And I do want to do something impactful. But this time I want it to be genuinely about making the world a better place. Um, you know, after all we'd been through, I had this overwhelming feeling of I literally want to give the world a hug and make it a better place. And whatever it is that I do next, I want it to be as big and as impactful and powerful as FanDuel was, but with much more of a mission-driven approach and uh, um, really focusing on improving people's lives. I want to dig into that a little bit because there's this kind of trope in Silicon Valley, which is like, you know, a company is going to take 10 years. And so you better start something that you're passionate about or something that you deeply believe in. And I, I might be jumping to a conclusion, but I don't believe, I don't, I, I don't assume that you were deeply passionate about fantasy sports betting. I certainly wasn't before I started FanDuel. Certainly wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I was deeply passionate about creating this new industry and whenever I joined a fantasy sports league I was in it to win it even although I'd never done it before in my life (laughs) I'm pretty competitive so um, I developed this passion for the industry um, uh, which hadn't been there before Um, I found that you know I'm not a sports fan if I was watching a football game or a basketball game without a fantasy sports team on the line, I would be bored 
watching it. But if I had a fantasy sports team going on, I would at least have that uh, to keep me going and keep me engaged in the game. So that was how that was how I got passionate about the whole thing. So you started playing, and then you were like, "Oh, this is actually quite fun, and the community is interesting, yeah. and you were creating this market." So that element of creation and yeah, newness exactly. kept kept you going. A serial entrepreneur that I know once said to me um, when I was thinking about what what I wanted to do next, he said to me, you can be passionate about a business that's doing well. You know, if a business is growing quickly, you'll be passionate about it. It doesn't really matter what the business is. You'll be passionate about it. And I thought hard about that um, as an element of truth in it. You know, it's it's hard to stay passionate about a business that's failing. Let's put it that way. But I think for me, it's less about it's less about being passionate about the underlying subject, and it's more about being passionate about the impact it's having on people's lives. That's what drives me, and it's what drove me at FanDuel as well. In that, I knew people genuinely loved the product, mm. and and so when you say impact, it doesn't have to be changing the world type, you know, um, it could be as simple as making, uh, giving people a platform to, to have fun, right, to exactly. entertain themselves. Exactly. And just that, that I remember a friend of mine was really into basketball and he's like, you know, it's a Wednesday night, the basketball slate is terrible, but I know if I've got FanDuel, I'm going to have a good night. Like, okay, brilliant. You know, that's, that's the kind of impact that we're having on people's lives. That's, that feels good to me. Um, and that was one of the drivers behind, behind Relish was, you know, how can I, how can I make people's lives better? And, mm. you know, having seen the, uh, the experience at FanDuel when I came out during that period that we were talking about afterwards, the thing that I kept coming back to was, it was only the relationships we had with each other, me and Nigel, the, all the co-founders, our employees, the team, those relationships were what got us through the craziness. Mm. And now at Relish, like I guess this is something I wanted to touch on. You're not starting this with your husband. Um, how, did you find, how did you find your co-founder? How do you think about building the team around you? Do you have a co-founder even? I know I'm working with our, our lead engineer is... Uh, someone that worked at FanDuel as well. Okay, um, so you have already you have a pre pre existing relationship there and that trust already. Yeah. yeah. So product and engineering are 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 based over in in in, in Edinburgh where we had uh, started building FanDuel in in 2009. We moved the headquarters to New York in 2011, but the engineering team is still in 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 Scotland. Love love Edinburgh too. Beautiful city. Yeah. Okay, so so you have the trust of the team around you. You are passionate about Relish's ability to help people. What um? Why don't we talk about kind of what is Relish? You know, um, how'd you land on how'd you land on this I- idea? I'm guessing you you evaluated many different ideas, or did yeah. we even did you even say when you decided to? I don't think you said after that exhale like what. What changed your mind about starting another company? Do you know what it was? Um, it was Nigel, actually. He, because I, he was like, just start another company. I'm like, what? <laughs> That'd be ridiculous. On my own? He's like, sure, you could do it. I was like, oh, no way. 
and uh, and the more I thought about it, and the more he kind of nudged me and encouraged me, um, you know, a couple of months I would say it took, um, and then I was like, all right, I'm going to do this, um, and then I spent about a month figuring out, you know, what area do I want to uh, look at, and I kept coming back to relationships, and I kept thinking if I could come up with a product in this space, it would really help people. Um, what we, what, you know, what we know about people who end up in couples therapy is that they leave it too late. By the time they get there, it's like a 50% success rate. The other 50% end up divorcing. So how can we help people earlier um, before it gets too bad? Um, and, and that was my starting point. That was my jumping off point. And so what is Relish exactly? Uh, Relish is a relationship trainer. Uh, We offer customized weekly lesson plans and activities for your relationship. We basically take an assessment when you sign up and we match you with uh, the right lessons for you, depending on uh, what you've told us about yourself and about your relationship and about your partner. Um, It's all based around science. We have a team of advisors uh, from various universities in the States. Yeah, I, I, I've taken, I've signed up, downloaded the app, taken the quiz, very right. comprehensive. So I was curious how you developed the questions. Yeah, we worked closely with uh, uh, various professors of relationship science and psychology um, and built it out uh, from there. It's based a lot around attachment theory, if you're familiar with that. No, I'm not. Can you explain what attachment theory is? Yeah, it's it really goes back to how secure you are in your relationship. So there are four different types of attachment uh, style. Mm. Um, uh, there's secure attachment, and then there's three different types of insecure attachment. Um, some people really appreciate more space and independence. Some people are a little bit more needy and want to know that you love them. And some people don't really know which one of those they are. So that's kind of the, the four different uh, attachment types. And um, it, they're really powerful in terms of thinking about what your partner needs from you, depending on what your attachment type is and what their attachment type is. So mm-hmm. if, for example, you're more on the needy end of the scale and your partner is more on the independent side of the scale, you're going to have problems and you're going to have communication issues and you're not really going to know the best way to interact with each other and give each other what they really need. Um, it's similar with love languages. If you have, uh, if your love language is gifts and your partner's love language is quality time, you're going to be, give, because your love language is gifts, you like to give gifts and your, your partner won't appreciate them because that's not their love language. So it's about learning what your partner needs from you based on uh, their attachment style, their love language, and various other components that we've put in the assessment. Um, And yeah, it's been really interesting to see how um, people are using Relish. We had wondered who would sign up for it when we launched last year. And what we discovered was uh, 60% female, 40% male are signing up. So men are using it almost as much as women. And um, it doesn't really matter what shape or sort of uh, 
situation your relationship's in, it can be relatively dysregulated or relatively healthy. Um, you're still going to get value from the product because it's customized based on the, the health of your relationship. I, I feel that, you know, similar to therapy, to talk therapy, um, you know, couples therapy is not necessarily something that has to be done only when there's an emergency, right? right. Like I think, I think perfectly sane people can all benefit. You know, we all have these many traumas that we develop over time from, you know, some kind of talk therapy, whether it be psychoanalysis, cognitive behavioral therapy or other. Um, similar, I think relationship check-ins with friends and loved ones and partners are so, so, so important. The communication element of a relationship and learning and yeah. growing together. Mm-hmm. It's like when that shuts down, it's it's already over, right? So any any tools, and I talk about on a previous episode with my friend Blue, we talk about some, you know, some quote unquote woo-woo tools and, you know, like, for example, tarot cards. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, tarot cards to me, I don't necessarily have to believe that they have a, a power um, behind them. But what they offer to me, if I pull a tarot card, is like a moment of reflection. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what card I pull. I'm going to mm-hmm. then reflect on that and say, oh, how does this affect my life? And then for a moment in time, I'm thinking about my life. And so it's the same thing with a tool like what you've built for relationships is an opportunity for a couple to look at themselves and look at themselves in relation to one another. And we can always get better. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, the, the surprising thing for me during this period of building relish has been Nigel and I have been together for 25 years, which is ridiculous. A lot of time. <laughs> uh, but we are still learning through Relish, actually. We're still learning stuff about each other that we didn't know before. There's, you know, because there's. So, how's like, Nigel feel about being the guinea pig for the, for the new product? <laughs> he loves it. <laughs> we'll get him on here next and find out if that's true. <laughs> Uh, but it's been really surprising. And I think even, even the healthiest relationships can be fragile or are fragile. You know, it doesn't take a lot for, um, for things to get out of whack. Um, and, you know, we're all busy and we all have lots and lots of commitments, especially if you have children. Um, and it's, and is there a different, mo- are there different modules for couples with children? Because I imagine that relationship changes dramatically when you have children. Right. Yes, exactly. And, you know, the science all points to that moment that you have your first child. That's the point where your satisfaction as a couple starts to dip. Mm. And that just continues until they leave home, (laughs) which, you know, if you're not careful, you're going to turn around and there'll be nothing left after they've left home. Uh, You know, that relationship with your partner. That's the classic Uh, empty nester syndrome need to keep that healthy because that's all you're going to have left once once your kids all leave home. There's like there's so many elements. I mean, would you consider yourself now a relationship expert? I mean, I know <laughs> a lot more about it now than I did 2 years ago. Um, but I'm definitely not an expert. You know, we have uh PhDs in psychology on our team. They're the experts, um, but I, I I certainly know a lot more now than I did then. <laughs> so I've I have so many questions on relationship. We could go for like an entire day. I'm going to focus on a couple of elements that I think you know I'm curious about. You mentioned um, one. Well, I'm curious about the 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 vernacular needy. 
it feels pejorative to me. Is there another word that's 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 used, or is it just that it's it's the best way to describe this personality type? Um, I mean, I'm sure we don't use that word on on uh, in the app. Um, I would say, uh, how would I describe it? Um, this particular attachment type is much more anxious than the others um, and um, also more loving. Um, you know, they're more eager to give love mm. and they need to receive love back in order to feel whole. Um, so it's actually a really, um, uh, you know, a really nice quote unquote uh, attachment style uh, and, and um you know, a lot of our a lot of our users fall into that category, um, and you know, I see elements myself in that where I I need to know that I'm doing a good job. I need to know that I'm loved and respected and and liked and all of those things, um, and and I don't see the word needy as necessarily pejorative. Just that you look externally for validation. Um, you need that validation from other people. Um, and like I said earlier, if you're with someone who is much more focused on themselves and being independent and having their own space and they don't need that external validation, that becomes a problem. Um, and that's where learning to communicate with each other in a way that the other person appreciates is really important. I guess I, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this because it just popped in my head. It's kind of like, you know, you're, the app is there to support the relationship between the couple. I'm of the opinion that we are, we are only in control of our own behavior. And so we can't change our partners. Um, is that is really like, I guess, is the core of the app becoming aware of your partner in order to, to change your own behavior? Is that how you would describe it? And I guess you need buy-in. Do you does one? Do you think one needs buy-in from their partner in order for the app to be bent to to work, or do you think that I could say, you know, take work work with the app solo, um, and gain some learnings that would actually benefit our relationship, anyways? Yeah. So so for sure, I completely agree with you. You can't change somebody else. Like you can't force anybody to change. And I know from talking to um, lots of marriage therapists, um, a large percentage of people turn up in therapy and expect that the other person has to change. Yeah. This is, all, you know, can you just fix this person? Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah exactly. So, you know, that's that was very much where I came from with the idea for Relish. It's like, well, let's let's think about how can we empower ourselves as an individual to effect change on the relationship without forcing anybody else to take part, without forcing anyone else to, uh, to change. And by becoming more self-aware and learning more about our partner and what triggers them and why that trigger happens um, and how secure they are and all of those things, um, you can actually get a lot of value out of Relish by using it on your own. Absolutely no question. In order to get the best outcomes, definitely having both of you on there uh, is going to it's going to make it more effective. 
Um, but it's really about self-awareness and partner awareness. You know, there's a big trend at the moment about self-care and me time is a big thing. Um, whatever that means. <laughs> You've never had it. <laughs> you're, you're, t- you're home good, Sam, exactly. <laughs> but you know, what relish is, is who's looking out for us? Who, where, where is the us care? And you can do a lot of us care on your own by, like I said, learning about yourself and learning about your partner um, and impacting how you show up every day. I think the important thing is that no matter how short or long you've been together, the other person has a choice every single day as to whether they're going to keep being there and show up and they can leave. Like, you know, people get complacent and this is about fighting that complacency and keeping things alive and keeping things fresh and being there for each other and showing up every day as your best self. And that's, that's the sort of thesis behind relish. I love this concept of us care. I think that we need more us care in society. I think what, what concerns me about the health and the, the, mental, spiritual, um, emotional, digital wellness, let's call them trends, is this continued, it's like, it's like the Silicon Valley machine is so pervasive that what, no matter how positive and powerful the concepts are that flow into the machine, gets spit out the other side with like the valley, you know, wrapped around them. And I think the valley works in certain areas, but when it comes to, you know, meditation, and mindfulness, what I'm noticing is this like productivity slash competitiveness, for lack of a better word, I don't even know if that's a real word, um, around like meditation and sleep. Like how many hours of good sleep did you get last night? I'm on a five-day water fast. What about you? I meditate for 30 minutes in the morning. Oh, I meditate for an hour and a half every day. Like, you know, and it becomes this like, Alan Watts talks about it, like my guru is better than your guru, this kind of back and forth. And and I think the solve to that is relationship is the best opportunity for self-reflection. Like it actually is selfish to yeah. be in relationship um, and, and in this way, because you, you can take, you can earn, give and take and, and grow so much and so much faster with a partner to offer you reflections. Like that's what I value so much about my relationship right now is like, I just value the opportunities that it offers me for reflection. Um, and growth. And growth fully. And, and growth stagnates when you're alone. You know, yeah. we're all householders. We're not, no one listening to this is sitting in a cave, you know, s- singing, you know, Sri Ram, JJ Ram for, you know, 20 hours a day. We all live in relationships. So why not improve it? And I think through improving your, our closest relationships as, as people will be able to do with relish, um, and those are our partnerships, our romantic partnerships. I think other areas of our life will start to improve as well. It's going to have a halo yeah. effect. Super right. cool. Exactly, exactly. And, and particularly, you know, if you do have children, it, it is kind of a ripple effect as well, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're all wearing we're all wearing the trauma jackets of watching our parents interact. <laughs> exactly. So like at a certain point, you're just like, is it really is it really just that 
my mom didn't let me cry long enough or like my like is it really can we stop it's like seems so simple you know but it's always just it's always about the parents I feel like if if I'm not a parent yet so you can correct me but if you live to become a parent you live to mess up your children eventually like there's no getting around it yeah you certainly get blamed for it that's for sure oh yeah well back to the teenage boys yeah exactly (laughs) oh well Well, Leslie, thank you so much. Um, I guess I'd like to offer you the opportunity to say anything else to the listeners, anything that comes to mind. I I just like so greatly appreciate you and your time, double time, um, and the opportunity to reconnect. I I loved our first conversation. I love this one as well. So thank you. No, great. Like this has been great, Mark. The last one was great and this one was great. Um, (laughs) In terms of uh, a message to the listeners, I would just say, look, life's too short to be in a relationship that's not as good as it can be. You know, let's all start looking after us and doing something about that and taking care of each other. And uh, yeah, good luck. Excellent. Thank you so much, Leslie. All right. And good luck to you. Thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed that episode and I hope that you're enjoying the podcast. It's been a really fun ride so far. I just get so excited every time I meet some of these incredible people and just love sharing their stories and and ideas with you all. You can learn more about the show at thelookuppodcast.com. That's T-H-E, lookuppodcast.com. You can follow me on social media at Wark Meinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N on both Twitter, Instagram, um, and Medium, and Facebook. Uh, We have a Facebook page for the show as well, The Lookup Podcast um, on Facebook, so check us out. You can also subscribe to our mailing list on the website for more future updates. If there's anything from the show that you want to catch, I've posted that in the show links for you to check out. And if there's any way that I can improve, please let me know. Feel free to reach out. If you have any guest recommendations, please let me know. Other than a couple of individuals who are helping me out in the background, you know, this is a passion project and I'm always open to feedback and any kind of support. I want to thank Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the sound editing and the intro and outro song that he created. And I want to thank Hello There Collective for their support on my social media. You can check them out at hellotherecollective.com. All right, that's enough for me. I'm sure you're ready to go on to your next activity. Thank you for listening. And please come back again next week for another episode of the Look Up Podcast. Podcast.